So this morning we are starting, as Clara said, a new series of talks um, which are going to be backed up by discussion groups, uh, but not this week. This week it's a quiz. I was about to say it'd be more fun than discussion groups, but I don't mean that. Different is the word, isn't it? Different. Okay. And this is a follow-up on our Big Issue series from the autumn. Um, and those talks are available on our podcast, uh, which is Oasis Church Services. Is it Oasis Church Hull Services podcast, I think? And if you are new to us um, and want to know something about what I'd call our distinctives, the things that make us who we are as church, I really would encourage you to listen to them. And they also give some context to what we're going to talk about now. So, so they're talking about what we call progressive theology. Um, and... I just need to start probably with a bit of a, a summary and overview of what that might mean, uh, because it doesn't really, the rest of it doesn't really make sense if I don't go a bit into that. So I, the overall narrative that I would call progressive theology is to reset or look again at the character of God and the relationship that God has with us and our fellow humans. The first point I want to make, and it's a really obvious one, but it's a really important one, is that it's still holding to what I call the ancient creeds, whether it's the Nicene Creed or anything else. Still holding to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Still holding to a three-in-one Godhead, the Trinity. Still holding to the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the Son of God and the certain hope of a life to come. Although what that life to come might be might be a discussion we have and go to Claire's What Does Heaven Look Like talk. So still holding to those fundamental truths, um, but challenging and looking again at some of the wider issues which have arisen at various times over the last 2,000 years maybe looking at Genesis again and whether that is a literal um, uh, historical truth or it's a creation story. Looking again at the idea that um, Adam sinned and in some way in sinning infected the entire human race, all of which are therefore separated from God and worthy of eternal torment looking again at the idea of a father, God the Father, demanding a punishment and sacrifice, which Jesus became. And then if we will only do something, if we will only go through a certain process of repentance and belief and adherence in some way, that we can find our way to some form of eternal paradise and then everyone else who doesn't is destined for somewhere else, some dark place. So looking at those issues again, but rather looking at the fundamental concept that God loves us, all of us, and that that's the predominant theme that runs through the entire Bible. More than that, not just that God loves us, but it's that revelation. It's almost the last thing that's said in the Scripture. God is love. 
and that therefore there is no us and them, no in and out, and that we have a theology of what we call inclusion, which is everyone, in every part of church, every part of our life, everyone is included, whoever they are, whatever they are, whatever their distinctives might be. And it, I read something on... Do we have to call X now? I think, does the word Twitter have to disappear now? I don't know. It was really interesting. It was somebody was talking about what I call the in-and-out theology, which is either that um, we're in, we are saved, they're not. We're going to heaven, they're not. Um, we are true believers, they're not. And the question in, in, in Twitter said, have you ever heard anyone argue an in-and-out theology from someone who is not in? So there is an in-and-out theology, but I'm out. So it's not only that there are some in and some out, some saved, not saved, some going to heaven and some going to hell, but it's actually on all occasions, I am in and they are out. I am saved and they're not. I'm going to heaven and they're not. JWs, Jehovah's Witnesses, have this, this concept of 144,000. 144,000 people will, be, will reign with God in heaven. Um, and they're one of them. Um, I think it comes, is it from Revelation, the 144,000? I'm not sure where it comes from. But that classic othering, I'm okay, Jack, and everyone else is in real trouble. Now, I've no doubt massacred both conservative and progressive theology then in my brevity. And I do apologize to all Bible school graduates, scholars, and theologians. But what I want to do is just give you a flavor there of the, the things that make us distinctive, what marks us out and the Oasis group of churches from some other churches, and also to give a context for what we're talking about now. Now, our title for these talks is Being Transformed. And my title is How Our Progressive Theology Makes a Difference in Our Lives. I've got another title, but I don't think I'd have been allowed to put it on the thing. My title is So What? What's the point? Why is or is our theology important? See, Jesus didn't have a great time with theologians. Jesus didn't have a great time with the teachers of the law, the Pharisees in particular, the ones who knew the law and every rule and every um, whatever the number of laws there are in, in the Old Testament. He didn't have a great time. Um, and the disciples were the ones who just followed. They followed Jesus. They weren't the great law the people who knew what the law was and the theology was. Now, clearly, we need to know what we believe. We need to believe, know whom we worship. We need to have the right attitudes and ethics. But I'm not sure how Jesus would have perceived our obsession with theology, our degrees, our Bible schools, our seven theories of atonement, our pre-pan and post-millennialism, and all the other bits that go into theology and the books and books have been written. I'm not sure how Jesus would quite have got his head around all that stuff. Jesus' call to his disciples was quite simple, wasn't it? Follow me. 
And I appreciate I'm overemphasizing that to make a point. But in the same way that I believe some people elevate the Bible as the Word of God almost over Jesus, the Word of God, I think sometimes, if we're not careful, we could elevate our theological discussion over and above what's important, which is our knowledge and subject of the subject of that study, which is Jesus and the triune God. So I have two criteria for valuable theology. One, it must reveal to me or increase my understanding, must reveal more to me or increase my understanding of God. For theology to have any point, surely it's got to do something to increase my knowledge of God, my understanding of God. Or, but actually I think the word is and, because I think these two things go together. It must change me. For theology to have any point, for there to be any reason why we dig into these things, it must change me. It must change my actions, my active belief, my attitude, my relationships. Otherwise, I would have to say personally, what's the point? So what? Might as well go and watch the football match on this afternoon. So the Big Issue series, they undoubtedly increased, for me, sorry, I can't talk about anyone else, for me, they increased my understanding of who God is and his relationship with me and with all of us. But I think we need to go that step beyond that. So what? What does it mean? What's it change in our lives? How are we changed by our theology? And here I think I've got some biblical support, which is just as well, isn't it? Which is the word transform. Um, And I think transformation is in a way just a longer and stronger word for change, isn't it? We must be changed by what we believe. And that is a deliberate reference, as you might have guessed from Claire's reading it out this morning. It's a deliberate reference to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And I'm going to read, if that's all right, both the New Living Translation and then the NIV. And then I'm going to try and mash them together, which is a, a, a recognized Bible translation theory, isn't it? You mash them together. So this is the NL New Living Translation. I'll read, for the first one, I'll read the whole passage out. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Then it says, don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And then the New International Version says this in in the middle bit. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. So to mash those two together, this scripture is saying this. Don't copy, conform to behavior and customs, the patterns of 
this world, and I'll come to that phrase in a minute, do be transformed, changed into a new person by changing our way of thinking and the renewing of our mind. And I believe the writer here is saying to us that whatever our encounter with God is, and that's whether it's sung worship or prayer or walking with God in, in a garden or studying or a more um, just reading the Bible, all of those things should transform us, should change us, should have a dynamic changing us to make us uh, more, well, more like God, but more that we can understand God's will and purpose for us in our lives. It must change us, must transform us. Otherwise, as I said, what's the point? And spoiler alert, I very much believe there is a point. But before I go on from that, I need to say something about this passage, because if you've been in church for a long time, that passage will have been read out to you many, many times. And I bet there are a number of people who probably heard about five or ten sermons about that passage. But every time I've heard it, it's been used to promote, in many ways, a non-progressive theology. In the sense that the world, that other place, is in some sense the other, the outside the nasty, sinful, dangerous place. Don't allow yourself to be affected by them, but hold yourselves close and be transformed. Keep well away from the world. Keep within the safety of your own fellow believers. Usually linked to views on morality, uh, often sexual morality, but other things as well. Don't allow yourself to be affected by that place, the world but allow God to keep you safe in your own place. And that's the exact opposite of where we are heading and have been looking. And also this passage is being used, and you may have heard this, the accusation that progressive Christians have allowed the world in, that we've been transformed by the world, not the other way around. And that we've stopped being salt and light and being protected from that other place. Now, we could have a series just on that, but I do not accept for a minute that progressive Christians have lost their salt and life and distinctive in the world as we see it. You only have to look at someone like Steve Chalk, who embodies a progressive theology. Is he salt and light in the world? Absolutely, of course he is. So this idea that um, by being a progressive Christian, you've allowed the world to influence you, I think is, is um, for the birds. So when I consider the world in this context, however, I do see a tendency to self-interest, perhaps to being judgmental, to being tribal, to exploiting the weak. Not always, but those traits that I see in some circumstances and which the transforming our mind should lead us away from. And those traits can be seen in church as well as out of church, and, and the opposite can be seen in church and out of church. So I don't see this, the world and the church, as that distinctive coming from there. And I try to think of a modern example of a pattern or behavior of the world that we should be 
transformed away from. And I have to say the one, it's a bit controversial this, the one that strikes me so absolutely clearly is a very political one. And that is the question of refugees and migration and illegal migration, legal migration and anywhere else. Now these are really difficult issues. But I just query whether things like self-interest and tribalism and fear of outsiders is driving so much of that debate, which makes one political party, who I won't name, promote ever more extreme views so as to win over the voters who wouldn't normally ever vote for them, and the other political party, who normally should be on the side of um, the oppressed and the outsiders, afraid of saying too much in case the people that normally vote for them stop voting for them. And that's the sort of pattern of the world that I think we are referencing here, this idea of self-interest or tribalism. And if you want to say to me, do I think our progressive theology, the inclusion of all, the dismissal of any sense of us and them should influence our view of migrants, excuse my French, hell yes. Because that's exactly the way in which our progressive theology should be making a difference in our lives. So I want to look at how our theology changes us. And I want to do it if that's okay, and if you will humor me by a bit of personal testimony. Because I can only really say how it's changed me. I can't, can't speak for anyone else. What has it done for me? What has my journey through that, I, that journey from a conservative theology to a, a more progressive theology of no one's excluded, everyone's included, God loves us, God is not angry with us, uh, moving away from the idea that we are the ones who are okay and everyone else is going to hell. How has that changed me and what's it done? And when I say this, please don't get ever the idea that I'm sussed it all out and I've got it all sorted because if you know me, you'll know that's not right. But my journey to a more progressive theology has changed me and I'd like to share a bit of that if that's okay. So I was a Christian, I became a Christian at university, about 200 yards away. And I came into a Christian world of certainties. Certainties as to what I should believe. Certainties as to how I should act. Where even to question those certainties would have caused me and others to doubt my faith. In my first year of being a Christian, I did have those questions and doubts. I tried to get my head round this thing that I had embraced but didn't fully understand. But I kept it all to myself. I never mentioned it to a single person. It caused me internal turmoil. Because I thought, if, I don't, if, I, if I'm questioning these things, does that mean I'm not really a Christian? You know, when you try so hard to believe, and if you've got a question or something that doesn't quite fit, it almost like, well, I can't be a real Christian, and I can't share that with other people, because if I share it with other people, they'll think I'm not a real Christian. Christian. And I suppressed it. I pushed it down. I pushed those niggles down. 
But over the years, there was always something. And I'd say it was this. It was a clash between my outward faith, what I professed and what I sang, and my inner beliefs and heart. I barely even acknowledged that it was there. Whether it was about Christian views on sexuality, heaven and hell, an angry God or anything else. But there was a distinction between what was in my heart, what I sort of understood to be right for my heart, and what I proclaimed when I came to church. And I used to frame that niggle in words like, I've not quite got my head around that, or I'm not entirely sure about that, but God knows. And my favorite, uh, I don't understand, but I know God is just, so it'll all be sorted out in the end. But that difference between me, the internal person, and me, the external person, was very real. And Brian McLaren, who is the person who wrote the book that Claire um, leads the studies from on a, on a Community Sunday, he's written a book called Faith After Doubt. And in that, he talks about the four stages of faith. And it starts with simplicity, the first stage of faith being simplicity. And some people never move beyond the idea of faith in the sense of simplicity. I know what's right and wrong. I know what's good and evil. I just believe. It's really basic and simple. But then people move on to what they call complexity. Actually, I'm not so sure it's quite as simple as that. I'm not quite sure. How does that fit in with this? And for some people, it might be science, for instance, uh, when you look at creation, or it might be other things. So people move from simplicity to complexity. Then they move to perplexity, where the, 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 the complexity starts to really dig at them. Well, I don't really get this. How... I'm really perplexed. And I have to say quite a few people leave the church at that stage, unfortunately, because they can't get their head around the, the, some of these issues. Their, their faith doesn't seem to fit in with the rest of the world. They're perplexed. But if they press through, and this is what Brian McLaren really presses in on, is what he calls the final stage of faith, which is harmony, where his external beliefs and his internal heart are at one. And, and all I would say now is if anyone's at that perplexity stage, I don't get this, I don't understand this, how does this fit with my beliefs? Do press on, please. Press through, because I think and absolutely believe that there is a stage of harmony which you can come from. So for me, my reaching, I started to reach the stage of harmony in my beliefs, and that has been so important to me. And if, if I hadn't reached that harmony between what I believed in my heart and what I believe externally, I'm not sure I'd still be here. I'm not sure I'd still have a faith, if I'm being honest. And it's caused me to be more open with my faith, as it's something I feel I can defend and stand up for, and believe in, whereas before I used to keep my head down because what I believed didn't quite fit with who I was. Only this week, someone at work said to me, if I believed, that would be the church that I would like to attend. 
And I thought, I quite like that idea. So the key element, and this is why I feel I have changed, the key change that I feel that my theology has changed in me is the realization that I am no better in life, work, or faith than anyone else. I'm no different to anyone else. There's the sense of inclusion everyone's in. I'm not in a special group of Christians. I'm not especially loved by God. I'm not especially saved by God. I'm not especially blessed by God. But I'm the same as everyone else. And yeah, for me, that was a big change. This idea that beforehand, I was in my church and everyone else was outside there and they were all different. That has changed me. It's changed my politics, I'll be honest with you. I won't tell you how I have voted or how I will vote, but it's changed my politics. It's changed my understanding of inequalities. It's changed my understanding of privilege, of unconscious bias. Now, I have a long, long way to go. And I had said, no way have I got there. But I absolutely believe my theological journey has changed me, and especially my attitudes and the way I look at other people. And, crucially, I absolutely believe it's made my faith stronger, not weaker. Don't believe the baby in the bathwater argument. The baby in the bathwater argument is, if you change your view on that, you don't only throw the baby out, you throw the bathwater out. No. Don't believe that deconstruction necessarily leads to deconversion. For some people it does, but no. I believe looking again at our theology strengthens our faith, doesn't in any way weaken it. For me, it's been exactly the opposite. I am more confident and certain and in harmony with my faith than I've ever been. Now again, people who are criticizing me would say, ah, Ralph, what's happened is that you have remade God in your image. So there's a... There's a there's like, Sorry, the long word. I have none of my sons here to criticize me for using long words. Um, there's a dissonance between what's in my heart and what I believe. And people would argue that how what you've done, you've changed what you believe so that it's, it's, in, a, it's in line with your heart. And you've made God in your image, not the other way around. But I don't accept that. If I am made in the image of God, which I absolutely believe I am, why should it not be the case my external beliefs, what I sing and believe and proclaim, don't chime with my internal heart and what I believe in my heart to be true, my conscience, I suppose you might kind it. So I find the idea of transformation, the renewing of my mind, really, really exciting. I see a virtuous circle of my internal heart and questions drive me to reconsider my theology, and then my adapted theology driving me to change my heart once more, my attitudes, my behaviors, and my actions. So what we're going to do in the next few weeks is we're going to look at how 
that theology, that idea of everyone being in, no one on the outside, that God loves us, he's not angry with us, but he loves us and is love. How does that alter our perceptions of ourselves? That's the first one. And we're going to look at that, uh, and each time we're going to look at these, we're going to look at the theology, but we're also going to try and earth it with some practical application. So we're going to look at how does that affect ourselves, and we're going to look at that in the context of mental health. We're going to look at how that affects our perception of the physical world, and we're going to look at that in the context of the environment and climate change. And we're going to look at it about how that affects our perception of others. And we do that in the context of social justice. So we're trying to take the theology and put it into the world. What does this mean for us? How does it change us? How does it transform us? How does it change our attitudes, our behaviours, our actions and beliefs in real world issues today? Not just sitting around in a nice group having a discussion about what the Bible means. My faith challenges me in ways it never did before. And I'm really, really excited to be on that journey, not on my own, as perhaps I was 30x years ago, when I didn't feel I could express any of that, and I kept it to myself, but on that journey together. So that's my encouragement. Let's go down that, that route over the next few weeks. Please do come to the discussion groups. They're really good. Um, just to explore together, how does what we believe change who we are for the better? Thank you. I'm just looking, 12 o'clock at that timing. Isn't that perfect? Anyone think I timed it? John, do we have a final song. I'm going to pray if that's okay. Um, and then we'll, we'll have a song. Are you okay with that, Claire? And then we'll, we'll have coffee and tea. Thank you, Lord, for the new or renewed revelations that come into our heart and that you have been revealing to us. That sense that not only do you love us with all your heart and you love everyone with all your heart, but even more than that, that you are love. Thank you, Lord, that your heart is to change us, to transform us by the renewing of our mind as we seek to understand more of you, as we seek to understand your commitment and your love for us, but also every single person on this earth. And Lord, I pray that as we go into the next few weeks, our hearts may be opened to be changed, to be challenged, to be transformed. Yes, by theories and yes, by um, theology, but actually by you, by your love and your compassion and your heart for us. And that as we receive more of that love in our lives, our hearts and our attitudes and behaviours will be transformed so that we can be more and more your vessel and your channel for sharing that love and compassion with the world. Amen.